Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. According to legend, the Roman Emperor Augustus once heard of a citizen in his country that slept quietly and lived a life of ease despite having many burdens to carry. This so intrigued Augustus that he dispatched servants to go and buy that citizen's bed, hoping that he, he too could experience a tranquil life. Needless to say, it was a useless purchase because Augustus never found the peace that his soul was searching for. The internet is filled with surveys, and you perhaps have seen them in magazines or heard them on TV or on the news, in which peace consistently, repeatedly ranks among the top most desired qualities for Americans in the 21st century. It's an elusive quality of life that everybody wants, but so few seem to get. In fact, some have even given up trying to find peace. Take, for example, the man who sarcastically defined peace like this. Peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. We are by no means the first generations to long for peace in the midst of a chaotic world. David struggled to find peace. It was an elusive goal, but he did find it eventually through his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're wrapping up our series in the book of Psalms today called Dear God. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 37 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder If you uh, forgot your Bible, raise your hand and we can loan one to you. One of our ushers will bring one to you. And if you uh, did not get a copy of the sermon notes, raise your hand as well. I understand that uh, there are a few worship folders that did not get sermon notes put in them. I want you to be able to follow along and see where we're going and take notes so that you can maybe review this during your devotional time this week. Our theme verse for this series for the last several weeks has been Psalm 34, verse 4. It captures, I think, in one singular sentence what David is saying about prayer. Uh, If you haven't underlined it in your Bible or highlighted it yet, I want to encourage you to do so. But let's read it out loud together one last time using the screen behind me or the sermon notes in front of you. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Now, we've learned in the last several weeks, last fall, and then I resumed the series here this month after taking a short break over the holidays. Uh, we've learned that uh, the book of Psalms is essentially a collection, a five volume collection of worship songs, Hebrew worship songs that were used in their worship services. In fact, the title Psalms literally means, in the original language, Book of Praises. If you want, you could even write that in your Bible next to the title, Book of Praises. It's uh, book one of the Psalms, which this series is based on, contains the first 40 prayers. Uh, It's not just a songbook, though. 
It is a prayer journal for David. David writes some of his most intimate prayers as he lives his life for the Lord and goes through great highs, but also great lows. There's encouragement, I think, in book one of the Psalms for all of us because in it we see that David is just like us. He struggled in his relationship with the Lord. He worried that God had abandoned him. He needed comfort. He needed direction. He needed protection and much more. And we've looked at all those topics that David has addressed in the first 40 chapters here. This behind-the-scenes peek into David's prayer life shows us, I think, that the Lord welcomes our authentic, anxiety-filled, doubt-soaked prayers. And he is often working to answer prayer even when we don't see it. And so David shows us, I think, that we don't need a title or a theology degree to be great at prayer. All you need is an authentic, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us access to his throne room. Now, last week we saw in in chapter 35, Psalm 35, that David was being hunted by enemies that wanted to kill him without cause. These were probably the henchmen from his predecessor, King Saul. David pleaded with God to wake himself as though God was sleeping because David wasn't seeing God move and act on his behalf. And it seemed as though justice was delayed. Perhaps you've been there. In today's text, uh, David is reflecting on his life, on how the Lord led him through seasons of injustice and suffering and enabled him to survive attacks from various enemies. As we look at Psalm 37 today, he records uh, what he has learned from these painful experiences. And he records it sort of in a Proverbs-like tone so that we can gain wisdom from him. Thus, our big idea today is this, the sermon in a sentence, would be that short-term faith always leads to long-term blessings. Short-term faith always leads to long term blessings. I mean short in the biblical sense. In that our life here on earth is like a vapor, according to James chapter 4, verse 14. Our life is just like that. 75 to 80 years, maybe, if the Lord is good, when compared to the span of eternity. In other words, we will soon see in Psalm 37 that David learned that having faith in what the Lord is doing today will lead to peace and blessings if we take a long view of our lives. Now the superscription that most Bible translations have say right up next to the chapter number of David. It is widely accepted that he wrote this psalm towards the end of his life. Whereas the other psalms that we've looked at in this series were earlier in his life before he had become king. Uh, Probably in his 20s, many of them were. And so now David is looking back. We see this, at least 
theologians conclude this because of verse 25. If you would just look there real quick, uh, chapter 37, verse 25, David says, I have been young, and now I am old, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And so it's that verse and some other things that I don't have time to get into that caused theologians to say they, they think he wrote this towards the end of his life and he's looking back on all that God has done. And he's sharing wisdom with the people of Israel to help them live for the Lord and get through difficult seasons. Now, of the six categories that we've been using to catalog uh, the Psalms in this series, uh, chapter 37 falls into the wisdom category. This is because unlike the other prayers we've looked at in this series, this one contains teaching on the righteous and the wicked that sounds like something from the book of Proverbs. Similar to Psalm 25 and Psalm 34, this one is also written in an acrostic form in the Hebrew text. Uh, it begins each, or excuse me, every other verse begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It, it's believed that this was done so that it was, a, it was a mnemonic device, so that Hebrew children and Hebrew adults could memorize this psalm more easily. Now, if you would look at the text with me, there are four truths that David learned from his own suffering and walk with the Lord that he wants to share with us today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Here's number one on your outline. The first truth that David is telling us about the Lord is that the Lord can be trusted. The Lord can be trusted. Fret not, fret not is an interesting uh, uh, word in the Hebrew. It comes from a Hebrew word that means to burn, to heat up, or to kindle one's anger. Some translations render it, don't worry, and, and, but it's describing the kind of worry that you get angry at the same time about because you're seeing some things that aren't right or you're angry and worried that things aren't going the way you think they should go or that God's not doing what you think God should be doing. David uses fret not in the ESV and, or don't worry in other translations two other times. In the first eight verses, if you look at your Bibles, notice in verse 7, it shows up there. In the ESV, it's fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. And then in verse 8, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. I would paraphrase this uh, verse 1 in this way. When you think someone's getting away with evil, don't lose your cool. Don't lose your head. Keep it together, man. It's going to be all right. I think that's what he's trying to communicate. Why? Well, because they're not going to get away with it, is what David eventually unpacks and explains. Look at, at verse, um, verse 1. Be not envious of wrongdoers. David also knows another temptation that we'll face when it seems the wicked appear to get away with something 
is, is the old, um, if you can't beat them, join them attitude. He's saying, don't, 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 don't just decide to throw in the towel on your faith and just join the wicked because they seem to keep getting away with things. No, 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 no. They're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get it. We could easily start thinking, you know, I'm tired of trying to please God and then suffering for it. It seems like unbelievers are living the high life, man. They're having more fun. They're comfortable, and they're getting away with it. Or the adversary can begin to whisper in our ears lies such as, hey, you know, fudging the numbers is just a small sin. It's when you consider the financial security your family could have if you just, you know, manipulate the numbers a little bit on your taxes or your sales report. Or the evil one might try to tell us, you know, you deserve to let loose a little bit. You've sacrificed a lot. David says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't give in. Don't go join them because you don't want to be on their team when God's judgment comes. Look at verse 2. He gives us a little preview of what's going to happen. They're going to fade like grass. Similar to the change of seasons here in Bakersfield, vegetation was abundant in the Middle East during the rainy season, but when the sun came out in the summer months and the heat came, it was common for the vegetation to die off. The reason David urges us to not envy evildoers is because anyone that sows what the wicked sows will also reap what they reap. David, in essence, is saying... You don't want to be associated with the wicked because their time is coming. Instead, he urges us to, in verse 3 to keep trusting the Lord by doing good. Now, uh, verse 4, as we uh, look at verse 4 here, it contains what I think could be one of the top 10 most misinterpreted Bible verses in American churches. Many misinterpreted Bible verses are disseminated by false teachers spreading a false gospel. This verse in particular is very popular with prosperity gospel preachers. In my research last night as I was preparing the message, I even found that media mogul Oprah Winfrey claims Psalm 37 verse 4 as her favorite Bible verse. She did so during an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert about two years ago. It's online if you want to see it. Look at verse 4 with me. It says in the ESV, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, here are three common misinterpretations for Psalm 37, verse 4, that I have heard over the years. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is, if I say I believe in God enough, or I have enough faith, he'll give me what I want. This is not true. He doesn't work that way. Another uh, misinterpretation I've heard is, if I do what God wants, he'll give me what I want. Sort of a transactional mindset. Like, okay, I'm going to cut a deal with God. I'll go to church, I'll serve, I'll tithe, I'll read my Bible, but God, you need to come through and do what I want done, as though we're somehow peers with God. You know, we can negotiate with him. 
Or, this is another popular one, if I give my dreams to God, he'll fulfill them or make them come true. Now, why are these misinterpretations problematic? Here's three quick reasons. Um, I don't have these on your outline. I thought of these after it went to print, so I apologize for that. But if you want to jot them down, they'll be on the screen behind me. Um, Three quick reasons why the misinterpretations are a problem with Psalm 37.4. The first is, is that they assume the desires of my heart are good. But we have to look at Psalm 37, verse 4, through the lens of all the other teachings of Scripture. And the rest of the Bible says, our hearts are corrupt and rebellious and self-centered. We all have an inherited sin nature that makes us want to run from God and thumb our nose at Him and do our own thing. To desire things other than God. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This inherited sin nature is why the gospel even exists in the first place. It's because man was rebellious and separated from God by his sin that Jesus had to come and die and on the cross and be resurrected. Receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior doesn't immediately get rid of our sin nature. In fact, according to Galatians 5, verses 16 to 17, receiving Jesus as Savior allows the Holy Spirit to move in and basically do battle with our sin nature. It gives us the power to say no to our sin nature for the first time, but it doesn't eradicate our sin nature. So so the first problem with the misinterpretation of Psalm 37.4 is it, it assumes that my heart's desires are good. And God's word says they're not. That I'm self-centered. Here's another reason. Uh, the, the misinterpretations for Psalm 37.4 be they assume God is here to serve us. It takes this attitude that God is here to do what I tell him to do. Really? So you're saying, we were made by him to worship him and have fellowship with him. We rebel against him. He sends his one and only son to die for us on the cross to save us from the penalty of our sins so we can have eternal life and forgiveness. And then he's supposed to serve us? Sadly, that's that's what's being pushed around our country in various pulpits. Even Jesus knew, even Jesus said that he was called to serve the Father. In John 6, 38, for example, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So, of course, the question is, if Jesus didn't demand to be served, then why do we demand to be served? Why, Why do we act as though God owes us something? Jesus said this in John 6, 38, and he submitted his life to the Father's will to be an example for us, to show us how to do it. If you profess to know Christ as your Savior, your life is not your own anymore, and that's a good thing. That's a great thing. You see, Jesus doesn't save people so the Father can serve them. 
He saves them so they will finally serve the Father like they're supposed to. So, the first problem was the misinterpretations for Psalm 37.4 assume the desires of my heart are good. The second issue, letter B, was that they assume God is here to serve us. And then here's letter C. The third problem is that it sets us up for disappointment when God doesn't give us what we want. The adversary loves it when verses like Psalm 37.4 are stripped from their context and misinterpreted. He loves it. Because bad Bible study methods like that lead to bad theology, and bad theology leads to bad behavior and disappointment with God. So then we have a lot of people that profess faith in Christ walking around here on earth going, I'm mad at God because he let me down. Why? Because I, I, he didn't give me the desires of my heart. Oh. Okay. So I, naturally this leads to a question that I was wondering, and I'm sure you are too. Well, then what does this verse mean? Well, notice there's a qualifier first. Delight yourself in the Lord. I think the best way for me to explain the meaning of this is to tell you a quick little story from my childhood that I think you all relate to. And I think it'll be more entertaining and interesting than me going into the Hebrew technical stuff. I grew up in a medium-sized town, a Midwestern city, located between Chicago and St. Louis called Peoria, Illinois. My home was about three blocks from a Dairy Queen stand that looks similar to the one you see in this photo. You couldn't go in, you just walked up to the counter and placed your order. My family and I kept a Dairy Queen like this near our home in business for the 20 years that we lived in that neighborhood. We could have had stock in the company. They had plastered up on the store window when you walked up to the counter full, big size, full-color posters of the various options on the menu. Two in particular stand out in my mind. Um, in, I did some Googling last night, and I hope you appreciate the early 1980s graphics here. Uh, one was called the Hot Fudge Brownie Delight, and the other, the Double Delight. Now, I loved these two treats and frequently purchased them with my hard-earned paper-out money. And this was brilliant marketing because Dairy Queen could have just said, like for the picture on the right, here's just a hot fudge sundae or sunda, however you want to say it. We won't debate that right now. But, or, or the picture on the right, it could have been, here's a double scoop sundae or sunda. But they knew that wouldn't be enough to sell, they knew they could sell more ice cream if they used the word delight. You see, Dairy Queen knew that delight is a more powerful word that means, according to the dictionary, extreme satisfaction or a high degree of gratification. Thus, that vivid picture and creative title sold a lot more ice cream to me over the years because when I saw it on a hot summer day before I was to deliver my papers, I wanted to delight in something. And it was great when they 
heated up the brownies so that it melted the ice cream just a little bit, you know, so you had the mixture of the temperatures, the cold ice cream with the warm brownie that was all gooey inside, and oh, it was just a wonderful, delightful experience. I can see you're getting hungry right now. But Dairy Queen's goal with those pictures was to get me to crave that treat so much that I would invest resources to obtain it and then cause it to become one with me. <laughs> and Dairy Queen made their hot, hot fudge brownie delight and double delight so good that it transformed my appetite in the summer from wanting just a bag of Skittles, which was my normal routine when picking up my papers, to wanting those tasty treats every day. So, what does Psalm 37.4 really mean? I think it means, after much study and consulting many resources, I think what David is saying is find so much enjoyment in who the Lord is that your desires become his desires. So, so, so it's not try and get to know the Lord so that he gives you what you want. <laughs> That's never turned out well, by the way, in biblical history. When man got what he wanted, that's one of the many reasons we need the Lord to work on earth and intervene in our lives. So, find so much enjoyment in who the Lord is that your desires become his. Well, how do you do that? Well, similar to my Dairy Queen story, you have to invest. And in this case, you invest time. Time with the Lord you do it just like you would with any other person you enjoy knowing, whether it be a spouse or a child or a grandchild. You spend time with them. You spend time with the Lord. If you spend time with the Lord in personal Bible study and prayer throughout the week, if you make time to be with other believers representing the Lord in a V group, if you make time for corporate worship each Sunday, you will find yourself over time beginning to delight in who the Lord is. As you study the scriptures and you hear songs about his character and his ways and how he feels about you, you will begin to see that nobody loves me like this and nobody cares for me like this and nobody can do for me what the Lord can do for me. Next, David tells us, how to trust the Lord by giving us some applications. And I'm grateful to David because he made my job a little easier, at least for point one. I didn't have to think as hard. The application was just right there in the text. And so how do we trust the Lord if he is to be trusted? Well, notice in verses 5 and 6, David says, commit your way to the Lord. And so that's our first application. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
There's a fascinating Hebrew word that David uses for commit here. In the Hebrew text, it literally means to, to roll your burdens off your shoulders onto his. It describes the releasing of our burdens and concerns and perceived injustices and need for vindication to the Lord. So instead of carrying it on our shoulders to roll it off onto his, so he can take it from us. The next application, the next way that David tells us to trust the Lord is to rest in the Lord. To rest in the Lord. We see this in verses 7 through 11. David says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Again, the voice of experience speaking here. David, the wise man, the senior adult, gray-haired, long in the tooth, looking back on his life. He maybe did some of these things, and he's saying, ah, don't do that. It didn't work out for me. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So rest in the Lord. It sounds cliche, but what does this actually look like? How do we rest in the Lord? I have to admit... um, I, I struggle with resting in the Lord. And, and to be transparent with you, I have to be honest and say that I think anxiety is probably the sin that I struggle with most. One person, and I've noticed similar to what David is saying here, anxiety in my life leads to other sins. It's been something I've been asking the Lord to help me deal with for years and one person that's been helping me in this area is the 20th, early 20th century Scottish preacher Oswald Chambers. In this classic devotional book, his classic devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, Chambers writes this about resting in the Lord. And I, I found this so insightful and convicting, I wanted to share it with you. You've heard me say that before. If I'm convicted by something, I don't like being convicted by myself. So I share it so we can be convicted together, and I don't feel as bad, okay? So thank you for indulging me here. Now, this is a little long, but I think you'll find it's worth it. And if you want me to send it to you, send me an email, and I'll send it, because I love sharing convicting quotes. Now, Chambers writes, Resting in the Lord is not dependent on your external circumstances at all, but on your relationship with God himself. Worrying always results in sin. We tend to think that a little anxiety and worry are simply an indication of how wise we really are, yet it is actually a much better indication of just how wicked we are. Fretting rises from our determination to have our own way. Jesus never worried and was never anxious because... His purpose was never to accomplish his own plans, but to fulfill the Father's plans. 
Fretting is wickedness for a child of God. All our fretting and worrying is caused by planning without God. So, one of the ways to rest in the Lord is to stop making plans without Him and instead to submit ourselves to His plans. And that takes faith. And as I said at the beginning of our time together, short-term faith always leads to long-term blessings. Next, let's look at verses 12 to 13. David continues to provide some encouragement for those that are suffering injustices. He says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Here's number two in your outline. The second truth that we are told about the Lord is that the Lord is monitoring your situation. He's monitoring your situation. Even though he's not, he may not be active, even though you may not see him moving, what we're told here and in other places in Scripture is that he is, at a minimum, watching and waiting. You remember in the news, whenever a crisis takes place somewhere in the world, the White House often releases a statement. It doesn't matter who the president is or what party he represents. The statement is almost always the same. And it has these phrases. Quote, the president has been briefed on the situation and is monitoring it closely. This is supposed to comfort our citizens in our country because we want to know that the man who has the resources and the power to do something about the crisis is aware of the crisis, and not just aware, but watching it closely to determine what resources need to be deployed. There's a calm that comes over the country, at least for some of us. We feel better knowing the president is aware, the president knows, and the president can do certain things to help with the crisis. We want to know that the person who has the power and resources to make a difference knows what's going on. Well, David says we can have that same confidence with the Lord. That's in essence what David is saying here. Notice in verse 13, he says, The Lord laughs at the wicked. He's laughing because the Lord sees the punishment the wicked are going to get in the future. He sees it coming And he knows that those who have committed injustices against his own people will pay. He's laughing like the child who laughs at their sibling who just got caught with their hands in the proverbial cookie jar. Maybe you've seen this in your house like it happens in mine. When one sibling gets in trouble, there's usually another sibling that's going, (laughs) it's because we like justice especially when it happens to other people. And so it's often that sometimes a a sibling will even share some suggestions on how to dole out justice to the sibling. You know, Dad, 
When I did that, when I was that age, I seem to remember I got a spanking and lost some privileges. Are you going to do that with my brother? Notice in verse 18, he says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless. So not only is the Lord watching the wicked, but we also see he has his eyes on the righteous. The original language here describes an intimate knowledge. It comes from perception and proximity. In other words, when the Lord's children are treated unfairly or suffering, he is close enough to the situation that he can see exactly what's happening. So, application. Pray like he already knows. When I was a new believer, I used to pray by filling the Lord in and all the details of my problems. Obviously because my theology hadn't been developed very much at that time. But this changed when I read Matthew 6, 8. It's where Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And towards the end he says, The Father already knows what you need before you ask Him. And I remember just having that verse, Matthew 6, 8, leap off the page at me in my devotions and it revolutionized how I pray. Because I realized for the first time, there's nothing I can tell the Lord that he doesn't already know. And therefore, since nothing catches him by surprise, nothing rattles him. And if the Lord isn't rattled, then I don't need to be rattled either. Now, I didn't say I've mastered this yet. I'm still working on it. But pray like he already knows. Next, David tells us, and here's number three in your outline, the third truth that he's unpacking for us in Psalm 37, is that the Lord will bless his people. The Lord will bless his people. Well, how does he bless? Well, the gray-haired, long-in-the-tooth David reflects on his years of walking with the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He lists three ways. So here's letter A under number three. He blesses his people with protection with protection. We see it in verse 23. David says, looking back on his life, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. The Hebrew text paints a picture of the, the Lord making something firm. The, the, the word actually means to make firm or stable or to direct or to guide. To reinforce, that's what established means. Some translations render it as the Lord grants success, while others say the Lord blazes the path of a man that's pleasing to him. The point here in verse 23 is that when a man or woman walks with the Lord in a way that pleases him, no one in the universe is able to knock that person off their course because the Lord's protection is upon them. Next, the Lord blesses with his presence. With his presence. Notice in verse 24, it says, The Lord upholds his hand. Again, the elder David is looking back on the times in his life when he stumbled, and he's able to see God's hand, which represents God's presence, picks him up again and again so he could keep walking. Some of you have been walking with the Lord long enough that you too can testify and look back and say, yeah, 
That was a dark time. But the Lord got me through it. I would not have gotten through that without the Lord. The Lord carried me through that year or that month. You know you wouldn't have made it if it hadn't been for the Lord. Next, the third blessing that David mentions is provision. Protection, presence, and provision. Verse 25, it says, uh, I've been young, I've been, I'm old now, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Note the qualifying possessive pronoun, his children. This means that the Lord takes care of his own. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he will always give us what we need. And in this context, this verse also means that if any professing believers have not been provided for, it could be they are not actually true believers. Or that they did not walk faithfully with the Lord, as the psalm prescribes. However, David isn't saying true Christ followers are never starved. Instead, he's just saying, it's so rare, I've never seen it in my lifetime. Thus, it's a generalization, similar to what we see in Proverbs, where it happens so often that the Lord's children are provided for, that it's generally true. That's what he's saying here. So, application, what do we do with this? Well, David is testifying from his own life, so I think he models the application for us. Thus, we should testify about the Lord's blessing. He is publicly testifying out loud through his written word to the Lord's faithfulness in his life. So it leads to a question. When is the last time you spoke about the Lord's protection and provision and presence in your life? When's the last time you shared a God story with someone of how he took care of you? Maybe a coworker or a neighbor, an unbelieving relative. So we should testify just like David did. Finally, we don't have time to read the rest of the psalm. It's 40 verses long, so I just want to hit a couple highlights for you. If you would, we're going to look at verses 34 and then verse 38. In verse 34, David says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. And then verse 38, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Here's number four, the final point in your outline. The fourth thing that he tells us about the Lord, and that is that the Lord will judge the wicked. The Lord will judge the wicked. Throughout this psalm, David not only compares the righteous to the wicked, but he also urges the righteous not to become the wicked. This is probably because when we've been wronged, our sin nature wants to immediately use sin to get back at the other person. As I talked about last week, we want to take justice into our own hands. Now, although true believers are no longer under God's wrath for their sin, we will, however, have to give an account for our lives. Romans 14, 
2 Corinthians 5, or just a couple of places in the New Testament that talk about believers standing in front of the judgment seat. And what that is, basically, is it's sort of like a finish line where the judge gives out medals, awards, for how the race was run. Thus, taking justice into our own hands could cost us awards. We won't be punished for it, but we could forfeit awards, eternal awards, that uh, would have been ours. Notice David's urging in verse 34 to wait and watch. The scriptures are clear. The Lord's justice may not be immediate, but it is inevitable. The Bible contains examples of both the immediate and delayed judgment of the Lord. Here's a, a three examples of immediate judgment. You can jot these down in your margin if you want to look them up later of the Lord dealing with sin right away. Numbers 16, there was a rebellion led by a man named Korah against Moses. God sent an earthquake to swallow up a few hundred people. Pastors love that story in number 16. <laughs> Joshua 7, it's another reference. In Joshua 7, Achan was found out and utterly destroyed. Another one, Acts 5. That's where Ananias and Sapphira were immediately killed for stealing from the Lord and lying to the Holy Spirit. Numbers 16, Joshua 7, and Acts 5. What I find interesting when I look at the judgment of the Lord in what has happened and what's described as will happen in the future, it seems to me that when the Lord brings judgment, he does so with the precision of a surgeon and the crushing weight of a sumo wrestler. <laughs> it's perfect, his judgment. In the three examples I just gave, the people that witnessed God's judgment gained a whole new fear for the Lord. It's interesting, and I think just about each of those passages, I think almost all three, the next verse after the judgment was given and the sinner or the wicked person was destroyed, it's like, and all the people feared the Lord. Because when you witness something like that, you're like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay, okay. I, there's just a, it's like a chiropractic adjustment, you know, it just... Everybody gets in line. Everybody gets back to where they're supposed to be when they see something like that. So, application. Our final one for today. Turn those that have wronged you over to the Lord. Turn those that have wronged you over to the Lord. As we learned last week, the Lord does not want his servants taking vengeance into their own hands. I mentioned last week a few reasons why. Is First of all, we're not as effective as he is. Also, we're biased where he's not. Jesus set an example for us on how to do this. It's described in 1 Peter 2.23. Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Well, if peace has been eluding you because the wicked seem to be winning in your life, I want to encourage you to turn them over to the Lord. Peace is possible by trusting in God's providence. When Jesus returns to earth, he will even every scale, he will right every wrong, 
and he will heal every wound. Short-term faith leads to long-term blessings. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you that you inspired, thank you for inspiring David to record this wisdom in Psalm 37. And Lord, I just want to pray for those that are here today or listening online that have been deeply wounded by others. They've suffered injustices. Lord, please, would you bring justice for their life? Would you, would you redeem for good the wrongs that have been done to them? But Lord, I also pray that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you might reveal to us if there's any injustices we've done that we need to repent of and make right. We know from the teaching in scriptures, Lord, that we are not only victims of sin, but we are also culprits. So, Father, if there's any unrepentant sin or injustices that we've done that we need to make right with you and with someone else, would you reveal that to us? so that we can be a good standing with you. We don't want our prayers hindered because of unrepentant sin. Father, for those that are waiting on you to come through, maybe for a job or for healing or a spouse or for finances, would you please give them the grace to endure, but also come through in your perfect timing. Would you provide some God's stories like David has where those that are waiting can testify that waiting was worth it it was worth waiting on you finally Lord if there's anyone here today or listening online that does not have peace with you because they don't know your son, Jesus Christ. Would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you help them to see that they are a sinner that needs to be saved, that they need to be forgiven, and they can be if they will repent of their sin and turn and follow you by faith. Would you help them to see, Lord, that they can have forgiveness and peace and eternal life with you if they would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Thank you for making that possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.